Do we have enough energy and willingness in this moment to be bold? Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. That voice you just heard was Stanley Richards with the Fortune Society. He works with the formerly incarcerated, uh, and he's formerly incarcerated himself. And that moment he's referring to is the, the remarkable debate that's underway right now about closing New York City's notorious Rikers Island jail complex. It's a, a debate about the future and uh, purpose of jails that a number of cities in the U.S. are in the thick of right now. In New York City in 2017, Mayor Bill de Blasio signed on to closing uh, Rikers Island, and that was a decision made possible in part by the city's already plunging jail population. It's currently at about 8,000, that's an historic low, and the city's target is for a population of 5,000 to allow for Rikers to be replaced in 2027. The plan calls for building four smaller, modern facilities near city courthouses, not on an isolated island. Uh, These would be facilities with improved services, uh, better working conditions for guards, and easier access for defendants' families. The goal, and uh, it's one many activists are skeptical of, is to build better jails. Jails that, as the mayor frames it, will end the era of mass incarceration in New York. In New York City, I had the honor of uh, moderating a recent uh, public event on that debate called Justice by Design. It was hosted by Open House New York, and you're going to hear highlights from it on today's episode. On the panel discussing uh, the future of jails in New York City were Elizabeth Glazer, director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, Pamela Drayton, a former corrections officer on Rikers Island, Stanley Richards from the Fortune Society, and Johnny Perez, formerly incarcerated on Rikers and elsewhere, and now director of the U.S. Prison Program for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. Uh, A couple of quick notes about things you'll hear referenced. Uh, The panel discussion was preceded by a presentation from Liz Glazer on the city's plans, along with a short film from Public Square Media called After Rikers, Justice by Design. You'll also hear references, one right off the top, to a slide Liz used in her presentation. It's a a series of maps of the city showing neighborhoods with the highest incarceration rates and then how those same neighborhoods are also suffering the most disparate outcomes in areas like employment and infant mortality. Uh, You can see the map for yourself on our website. Go to courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. So I, I started off the night's discussion with a kind of big picture question. Does closing Rikers really present the opportunity to end the era of mass incarceration in New York City? Stanley Richards speaks first, and then you'll hear me introduce each panelist in turn. I think closing Rikers does more than that. I think those things will happen. But I reflect on Liz's slide around the underlying issues that drive mass incarceration. When you look at unemployment, mortality, you look at education, you overlay those maps. What we're talking about by talking about closing Rikers is putting ourselves in a position to reinvest in those communities, reinvest so that we don't have so many people cycling in and out of jails, reinvest in the community so people can have jobs and people can uh, have uh, decent access to education. So for me, closing Rikers, all of those things will happen. It's a process. But for me, it's about how do you really invest in the communities and reduce the drivers of mass incarceration? All right. Thank you. Um, Liz? 
I think closing Rikers is actually the wrong term. It's not about real estate and it's not about mechanics. All of those things are a means to creating a more just system. So when we talk about getting the population down, it sounds very mathematical, but it's not mathematical at all because what it really is talking about is how is it that you figure out that the best way of addressing people who may have multiple issues, homelessness, mental illness, other things, that the first response is not the criminal justice system. Pamela. Closing Rikers isn't about a building. It is about the people. On Rikers, people are not treated like people. They're treated less than human. The environment, it actually holds the truth that you are not human. We do need to inspire and encourage the people who are there so that when they do go back into the communities, they have something that they've taken away that they can bring back. And you can't get that at Rackers. It's antiquated. The building is antiquated. The laws that hold them there are antiquated. And all of those things need to be fixed. Johnny, what do you think? For me, I think about it really symbolically, you know, like getting to a place in a city where the criminal justice system is more reflective of what, I, what we say our shared values are. So on one hand, we say that we believe in justice, that we believe in fairness, that we believe in issues of safety, but the current system in its current form doesn't reflect that. So when I think about closing Rikers, I think about the reflection of our, of our shared values, but also right, closing down a place where so much atrocity has happened and, and, and has had probably perpetual impacts on people's lives. You know, so I think about the, the lives in, that have been harmed by the place and also getting us, getting us to a place that's more reflective of our shared values. All right, so it's obviously about more than just closing a building. It's about, um, I think, closing out on a philosophy and an approach, um, a kind of mass approach, if you will. And we're talking about treating people as individuals. And I really think a, a good focus for the conversation, I think it came out in, in the movie and maybe Liz's presentation as well, is, is dignity, is treating people with dignity. But the question is, how do we embody that in the design? Stanley, for example, you're, you're on this design committee, right? So how, how do we embody this focus on treating people as individuals through the design of these new facilities. You bring to life the design principles that we came up with. Like those principles have to be woven into the actual design of the facility. We have to build it in such a way that the men and women who work there, the officers, the, the volunteers, the civilian staff, the people who have to be detained there, everybody feels like that place is a place that treats me like I matter. I'm being held accountable for whatever reason, but the place and the way that it operates recognizes the human dignity in everybody. So as we were going through the design principles, we weren't just looking at it like, okay, what do we have now and how do we build a better building? It was like, how do we have the building be a place that speaks to people, that provides opportunities for officers and detainees to talk? And so we think we can do that through design. That's one element through design. Pamela, you, you had a son who was detained on Rikers. Uh, you also worked as a corrections officer on Rikers Island and had that direct experience. So how, how do you think we can do dignity in a carceral setting? I think it depends on the training that the officers get. 
Um, the training needs to be more community policing kind of a training where we have interactions with one another. That there are people talking to people, you know, not people dictating to people what they need to do and, and speaking to people as though they're children. The training that I received in 1982, because that's when I became a correction officer. And Rikers probably hasn't changed that much since 1982, right? I mean, how it no, looks inside. No, it hasn't. From the last time I visited my son there, which was around 2013, it was the same. It was the same. It was getting across the bridge. It was horrifying as usual. Getting to the control building. Then after you get to the control building, you have to find the bus that takes you over to the facility that you're going to because there's no walking on Rikers. Um, once you get to the visit area, it's, it could take hours to get in there. They'll tell you, um, they won't tell you, they won't inform you of the process. It's, it's almost like the subway system, right? You get stuck on the train in the tunnel, and no one says anything. So you don't know what's going on. And it's the same thing on a visit. When you get to the visit, you will sit and wait, and no one will tell you anything. No one will say, there's a count. We can't release the population yet. Nobody gives you that information. That's disrespectful. It's like we need to respect one another. You know, and as a visitor, they make you feel like you're the criminal. They show you no respect. It's really hard being on this side, but being a correction officer, and when I worked the visits, I've seen a lot of things like people trying to bring in contraband and stuff like that, but I didn't think the officers needed to be as hard on people as they were. And maybe that's just me, it's just who I am. But I think if you speak to people and you speak to them with respect, you will get a better response. And um, Johnny, you're someone who's experienced incarceration and, and reentry, and pretty clearly you've made quite a considerable success of, of reentry. But what difference do you think this, you know, this this focus on treating people as individuals, if we can really get to that point, and and having people in you know communities where things are more accessible and services are more accessible to them, what difference do you think that will make for people's reentry? Yeah, I think. Just really quick, just mention about the design, you know, to add really quick. People need to understand that if, you, if you've never been inside of a cell, you know, it's, it's the most dehumanizing space that you can be in. I'm talking about, you know, imagine a place where you, I don't know, no mirrors, for example, right? We take mirrors for granted. Everybody looked in the mirror this morning, right? There's people in, that are locked in cells that haven't looked at themselves for, in mirrors for years at a time. So, like, you know, we're talking about dignity. It can be something as simple as that. I'm not saying the mirrors are going to make the change, but just to kind of kind of expand the magnitude of the issue. As far as it relates to being, you know, having more access to families, my, me and my daughter in the film, right, we were separated for a, lot of, a long time. You know, so how hard is the reentry look like, right? And it, here it is, we live in a city where most of the people that are currently incarcerated in our city's jails are going to come out one day. So it, it makes sense to strengthen those family ties to facilitate, to facilitate communication between the individual and the community to increase the likelihood that they be able to not, become, not only become employed, but also have access to their families, have access to mental health treatment, have access to another, uh, a number of different things that they need. So um, I think it affects folks in a number of different ways, more than we probably can fathom right now. And then, Liz, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the case of women being incarcerated on, on, on Rikers and elsewhere. We, we know that the vast majority of women are incarcerated for, for nonviolent offenses. We also know they tend to have very specific needs. The 
I mean, most people, uh, male or female, uh, in jail or prisons have experienced some, often some pretty serious trauma and victimization, but that's an almost universal experience uh, for women in incarceration. So going forward, if we get to this new model, what kind of specialized services are there going to be for, for, for women? And, and, and have we given thought to having a special, uh, unique facility uh, for them, which might help with some of the, the concerns over the size of some of the, the, the current proposed sites? So we can't wait for five or ten years to Clearly. to solve this issue, and it's an issue, obviously, of deep concern to everybody. I think with women, there's been a very large investment in programming, in visiting, in mental health services. Women often have a higher rate of mental health needs than actually the men at Rikers, there's been quite a bit of investment in ensuring that visiting is not what you've experienced, that the women can come out and meet their children and families in places that are not the jail. But all of these are are just pieces. And I think uh, as we try to weave this together now, it's also an opportunity to think through whether there's a single facility for women centralized in one place or whether they're in different places. And then you mentioned mental health, which again is a problem. This is not just women, this is the whole population. And I think all of you here have dealt in different ways with this issue of mental health and incarceration. So I guess an open question for how we're hoping to see you know, the issue of mental health dealt with going forward. Again, whether there's some kind of maybe a dedicated facility that removes it uh, from the control of of corrections, for exactly, uh, so, for example. Right. So again, this is an issue that's here and now, as well as one for planning, and I think it has many different parts to it. One is who actually is entering the facility because someone called nine one one. They may have been acting up, and a police officer's options are really jail or nothing. That's really a terrible thing. And so the first instance is, how do we ensure that people aren't getting arrested because that's sort of the automatic pilot after 911? Uh, the second thing is, how do we have better services for people on the island? And there's been a big investment in that and a whole series of different kinds of special units for people who suffer from mental illness and other behavioral health issues. And I think the third thing is, which is sort of in the works now, is if in fact people have mental health issues and have to be confined, is there another way, not jail, that they could be treated and still meet their court obligations? And that's what this moment presents right now, the moment about size of jail, population specific. And I think by all of us coming together and really flushing out what Liz just uh, talked about, about people with mental illness, about women. Do we have enough energy and willingness in this moment to be bold and to reverse some of the harms that mass incarceration did for people with mental illness by closing down mental illness, mental hospitals and, and community services? We ended up with all of these folks in, in jails and prison. Can we use this moment to reverse that? 
And Johnny, I know you've done a, a, a fair bit of work on on this issue, and I, I wonder what what you would like to see. I mean, as Liz keeps helpfully reminding me, this is not just a ten years down the road issue. Any of these questions, it's very much here and now too. So, what you would like to see in the short term for better dealing with you know this issue of mental health, and then what your hopes are for this more long term process? Yeah, I mean they're both kind of similar. You know, I think that people with mental health challenges don't deserve to be incarcerated. You know, I think that Carson is not equipped to deal with folks who have mental health concerns. I think the city can do better, you know, with due respect that, you know, crisis response teams, you know, there's folks, advocates who are doing like that work, who, who intervene in, in, in instances where people are having, you know, um, whatever challenge they're facing and, and diverted from incarceration and diverted from a jail cell. You know, I've seen that professionally. And then being inside of the cell, I've spoken to folks that you can clearly see that this person needs some type of professional medical attention versus locked in a cell all day or, you know, whatever have you. So I think that we should be diverting people. I think that we already are, but I think we can do it to a higher, to a higher degree and be, be more aggressive about it, both in the short, short term and eventually in the long term having a vision where we don't have folks like that um, who are facing mental health challenges inside of these spaces in the first place. Reduce the footprint of, of the criminal justice system, in essence. But uh, even like on a short-term basis, can we get offices trained like in mental health, mm -hmm. can we get them in the jails to be able to identify, you know, if this person should be incarcerated or should they be have mental health assistance at the time? I mean, that's some of the idea, again, of this long-term plan is the building of a new training academy for corrections officers. I'm, I'm assuming that the kind of training Pamela is talking about is what would be part of any and curriculum. And ongoing now, and about three or four years ago, a big investment in crisis intervention teams, which would mean both that officers get trained, but also that when there are responses to people who are having issues um, in the jail, the response is not simply by an officer, however well-trained, but by a mental health professional as well. And in the Lipman report, I was part of the Lipman Commission, we put in there, in addition to the facility, really strengthening the training that they get uh, how long is the training when you went through the academy? Three months. We we had recommended some additional training. Three months to be in that kind of environment, working those kind of hours, we need to do something with the training. So there was some specific recommendations, we hope, end up in the D Department of Corrections plan. I mean, are, are we confident, though, that we can turn around this, um, you know, culture of punishment, really? I mean, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Rikers Island or... Are we confident that, you know, more training for DOC officers, that, that that is going to turn things around? I don't think it's one of those things. I think we need to do all of it. You know, at Fortune, we say hurt people hurt people. And if we start treating officers like they matter, we give them decent training, we give them a decent academy, we create a vision for them about what care custody control really is and how care custody control plays out in the new vision of the new jails, we can begin to chip away at all of the old stuff and really bring in new energy around confinement and conditions of confinement and how people work together. So I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a combination. So I, I, I want to turn to talk about something Liz mentioned, which is this question of violence and offenses involving violence or offenses that the 
criminal justice system labels as involving violence, which often isn't what you or I would think is, is uh, particularly violent. But so often criminal justice reforms end at the water's edge of, of violence. And it's pretty clear if we're going to keep dropping the population down, we're going to need to take a new approach to offenses involving violence and, and the people who have uh, been convicted of committing them. So again, it's an open question, I guess, for w what people think that new approach could look like. I think it already looks like um, restorative justice. I think there's groups that are already doing restorative justice programs, you know, and I think nationally the conversation around how we respond to violence has been elevated because we, in a lot of different states they're at a place where they realize that even if you let out every single person who's been arrested for a low-level drug offense will still have the largest, you know, incarceration, you know, population in, in, the, in the world. So, um, so I think that definitely restorative justice and, and the piece about culture, it's, it's more than just training. I had colleagues who recently visited uh, Germany, I believe, and one of the ways in which they reduce violence in Germany is just by strengthening the relationships between the person who's doing the time and whoever works there. So that's something to completely think about and, and, and challenge. In fact, I would even argue that we need to just completely limit DOC's role because they've already shown that they're not even competent to run the facility in the first place and highlight the folks who really need, have the training and resources to, and resource these folks to do, to do that work, whether it's mental health practitioners, social workers. You know, when I think about my incarceration, I didn't listen to not one correction officer, not one. Just because of the uniform they had on, you automatically disqualified. Some of my best conversations came from mental health service providers, counselors, so on and so forth. So these facilities give us the opportunity to reimagine not only design, but also reimagine roles within those facilities. And Liz Stanley you know, says now's the moment to be bold. Do, do you think that the, the city is prepared to take some bold steps on, on, on this question of offenses regarding violence? So I agree that we paint with a very broad brush and we take the label instead of what the actual risk is that someone may pose or not pose. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, but I think that it's going to require culture change. It's going to require culture change by New Yorkers who are willing to have people who have committed a serious offense wait for trial in the community. It's going to be require culture change by judges who are willing to let people out. And I think we are already seeing that a little bit. One of the biggest drivers of that is a program that in the city called Supervised Release that give judges an option between jail and nothing, meaning you release somebody with no conditions at all or you put them in jail essentially because they're on bail. This is a program that judges used to enormous effect. It's driven a big part of our jail population down. And because over the last three years judges have seen that it works, over the last six to eight months, new programs have now grown up for younger folks, sort of 18 to 24-year-olds, who have been charged with violent offenses who are now eligible for that program, meaning that they can be released. And it's had very, very good success. But I think it's going to require that culture change for people to see through the label of the offense to who the person is in order to reduce that population. 
I mean, obviously this is a big and difficult conversation and it's proposing some pretty seismic changes, not just to the criminal justice system uh, in this city. And there's been a lot of uh, opposition, and there's a lot of opposition in uh, the communities and the neighborhoods where these proposed facilities would go. And it's not just an issue of, you know, not in my backyardism at, at all. There are people with, you know, very real concerns about the size of these um, proposed facilities, and people clearly feel that they're not being heard. So there's been a lot of engagement so far, pretty intensive. And there's a lot of process to go through still, which will be very, very intensive uh, with community boards, elected officials, neighborhoods, et cetera. And I think that's very important to have that kind of engagement. And that's going to be a crucial part of shaping, you know, what the jails look like uh, and how they fit into the neighborhood. And it's important to the city that they be a part of the neighborhood and not, not dominate. I mean, is there thought then to, you know, making the towers uh, smaller? I mean, hopefully without, you know, reducing services. Yeah, so I think every focus is on reducing the population. And that is the name of the game for reducing the size of the buildings. And I think also, as Stanley mentioned earlier, there is going to be a give and take of what are we willing to give up inside with respect to program areas or housing areas or direct sunlight or indirect sunlight. And so there are a whole array of things that can be done, and we're committed to doing that. And I, I guess a question for, for Stanley and Johnny, that there's also been opposition from, you know, a different direction, which, you know, we could call the, the no new jails voice in, in this debate. And uh, you guys are both, you know, formerly incarcerated people who are, you know, really dedicated to improving criminal justice in this city. Is it difficult for you to find yourself on a side of the debate where you are, in a sense, I, I don't want to say on the other side, but having to navigate this other opposition, which is saying, no, we don't want 21st century jails. We want 21st century communities. And I'd say they were right. In an ideal world, can we exist without jails? It would be great. But we have a reality that we're dealing with. And the reality is that we had a system that had 22,000 people uh, detained. We had over 150,000 people cycling through. And we have to do something about it. And we have a national problem with how many people we have uh, incarcerated. And I think the first step is to reduce our reliance on incarceration. The second thing I think we have to do, and this goes to the community question, is we have to stop demonizing each other in this, in this conversation and really just start listening to each other and start working together. Where we see the best in each other and we listen to each other to get this thing to move forward. Johnny, how do you understand where people can get, I mean, the best out of the sides of people with good faith here working towards improving things? I struggled with the question for a while, right? You know, being formerly incarcerated, but also, you know, being a black man in America, right? And also raising a young black boy and also raising a young girl who's also of color and knowing that chances are um, they will, you know, see the inside of a cell in their lifetime, at least higher than everyone else. What really made it for me, and also as an abolitionist, I believe that we can truly get to a place where we don't have, you know, prisons in it because I've seen it. But the understanding that it's an overall reduction in the entire system, in the criminal justice system in New York, but also the city now has a reduced capacity, right? The New, New Jail's folks, right? You know, if you, if you create it, they'll fill them. 
And, and that's very valid, um, except that you can't fill beds that are not there. So when we look at where the capacity is now to where it will be at the end of the plan, there's only but so much, so many people that you can put in there. And then guess what? We'll come back for the rest of those beds to eliminate those too. But for now, you know, do we see overnight a New York City that doesn't have it? I just, I just think that, I think that this is a necessary step toward abolition. Uh, I just don't think that we are in a place where we can actually see that so fast and rapidly. Yeah, I mean, on the topic of, of being too far away to, to see that goal just yet, in a sense, we've, we've already given a kind of outline of the answer to this question, but I, I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask this question, which is, yes, as Liz laid out in her presentation, there's a kind of New York City miracle that's been quietly underway for a while uh, in terms of, uh, you know, incarceration number and, and crime numbers. And it's, it's really something, and it holds a lesson uh, for, for the country, I think. But at the same time, as we saw in that really affecting uh, graphic that, that Liz put up, racial disparities have just have not moved in all of that time. Even as the base rates shrink, the racial disparities remain the same, if not, in some instances, even hardening. And, I mean, that just vastly deprives from this feel-good story I just proposed to the New York City Miracle. So what are we going to do about that? Yeah, and this is why I don't think this is just a criminal justice system. It's not getting under the sink with a wrench and, you know, making the system a little better or more efficient or more or fairer. I think it's a much, much more fundamental issue that has to do with investment in jobs and education and decent public places in a very focused and intensive way. And the proof for me and the proof for Johnny is that, and I'm not speaking for you, Johnny, but it's okay. the, the, <laughs> one of the elements I know for me that helped me change my life was education. What I thought all my life I was going to be cycling in and out of prison because I thought that's what my destiny, that was my life. And then when I realized through education that all those messages I got about my worth and all those messages I got, about, I got about who I was because I come from the projects were lies. And I discovered who I was through education. So Liz is right. This is more than mass incarceration. This is about investments in communities and education and the things that we know, the map, the red map. If you overlay them and did it like that, you can see it. So we know where the problems are. We have to do the investments. So those were highlights from an event in New York City I recently moderated called Justice by Design, and it was hosted by Open House New York. On the panel, you heard Elizabeth Glazer, director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, Pamela Drayton, a former corrections officer on Rikers Island, Stanley Richards, uh, executive vice president at the Fortune Society, and Johnny Perez, director of the U.S. Prisons Program for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. Uh, I have a number of people to thank for today's episode. Gregory Wesner and Bill Hunter at Open House New York, Colby Kelly and Bryant Silva from Public Square Media. And if you're in the New York City area, April 23rd, NYU is hosting a screening and discussion of Public Square's After Rikers film. Uh, there's more info and a link to register for that on the page for this episode on our website. That's courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. Thanks as well to Urban Omnibus for letting me rework the title of a piece they published uh, to use as the title for this episode. Uh, please go read their piece on Rikers, A Jail to End All Jails. A uh, link to that is also on our episode page. And thanks as well to the technical staff at the SVA Theatre, Greg Berman and Maurice Chama. 
This show is edited and produced by me. You can uh, find me on Twitter at DidacticMatt. Technical support is from the garrulous Bill Harkins. Our director of design is Samia Amin Mia. Our VP of outreach is Emma Dayton. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>